Amen. You may all be seated. Those of you who are at home, happy Sabbath to you. Um, Today we have um, a great, great service uh, together because we have the word of the Lord, we have worship, but today is also a special day because as you can see, uh, we have a special baptism today. Um, There is a brother among our midst, his name's Sam, Sam Chung, and today is a a great day because we um, get to baptize him and be a part of his uh, spiritual journey. Uh, Sam has come to the Lord and he has come to know and believe in Jesus Christ and today we get to celebrate as a family um, his baptism and his entrance into the family of faith. Um, But as we do that, we're gonna continue in our Revelation series that we started last week and we're gonna be in Revelation 2 and so if you wanna get your Bibles, I'm just gonna read um, Revelation 2 verses 1 to 7 with you, okay? This is the word of the Lord. This is the first of um, seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. It says this in verse 1. To the angel of the Lord in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Today, as we continue in our uh, Revelation series, uh, we come to these seven letters that are written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And as we begin, I actually kind of want to show you guys a couple of pictures of... Patmos. Remember, last week we said that John is getting all of these visions on the island of Patmos. And I know that most of us have never heard of Patmos or have never been to Patmos, never seen it. And so I actually have a couple of pictures just so that we could get a sense of where we are, what's going on. And so the first picture here um, that we have, this is uh, a map of Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. And so if you take a look, I don't know if you can see all the way in the bottom right-hand corner, it says Patmos. That's the island of Patmos. Uh, The island of Patmos is a small Greek island in the Aegean Sea, and it's very, very close, as you can see, to the seven cities where the seven churches reside, okay? And so all of the seven churches are actually in Turkey, and there are trips that you could go on now where you could go and visit each of the churches and you could go on this kind of spiritual vacation um, with your loved ones and you could go through them. And I know many people who have done that. The island of Patmos is right here. And so this is where John is when he receives this vision. The next picture is actually a picture of what it looks like on Patmos. Um, so if you look on there, I don't know if you can see, but it's actually really beautiful, really, really beautiful place, um, the island of Patmos. In fact, uh, Forbes, Forbes magazine in 2009 named uh, Patmos one of the most idyllic places to live and visit in Europe. So if you ever have a chance, maybe you want to go and see it because it is beautiful. And then the next picture 
is John's, uh, St. John's Monastery. And so this is the monastery that was put up in John's honor, the Apostle John's honor, because this is the island on which he received the visions of Revelation. And so they established this monastery here in honor of John. And so it's on this little island. There's only 3,000 people that live on this island. It's really small, right? Less people live on Patmos, the entire island, than in Northville, right? Just to put it in perspective. So it's a small island, but these um, immense visions are given to John on the island of Patmos. And today, uh, we're going to see one of the first things in Revelation that's revealed to him, and it's these letters to these seven churches that we just saw. Now, they are seven letters to seven actual churches, like you saw on the map, but, you know, numbers in Revelation are very special. They're never just numbers, okay? Numbers in other books of the Bible, they may just be numbers. So if you ask, why did they catch 153 fish? right, Uh, Jesus' disciples. What's the significance of that number? The answer is they caught 153 fish because they caught one more than 152 fish. That's the only significance. There's no significance to that number. But in Revelation, every number is significant. And it doesn't just represent that number. And especially the number seven, it represents all the churches. And so, yes, these are seven letters to seven distinct churches, but it's actually a letter to all of us all the churches of all time, and all Christians too. And so we have a lot to learn. And what you see is that these letters are not really from John. They're actually from Jesus himself to these churches. And so he says, John, write what I say and send it to these churches. And Jesus, what he does in these letters is he exposes these churches. He exposes what's going on in these churches. Five out of the seven churches he rebukes. And he says, I am the son of man among the lampstands. Remember we looked at that last week, that he's the son of man who was near the churches. And he says, I know. I know what's going on in your church. I know what's going on. And Jesus exposes them. But the reason he exposes each one of these churches is so that they would come back to him. And today we're going to take a look at that. We're going to look at what about our church? What about us as Christians? What about the modern-day church? We're going to relate um, to these letters by looking at us, and we're going to ask, um, how are we drifting away the way that the Asian, um, Asian minor churches were drifting away? And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at three drifts, how the church drifts away in these three ways in the letters to the seven churches, and then we're going to look at two anchors, three drifts and two anchors, and I hope that that will help us to rethink um, how we can come back to the Lord in 2021 as a church, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we have this tremendous opportunity and this blessing of being part of this great baptism today, but Father, before the baptism is done, we want to receive the word that comes from above, not words of man, but words from Jesus himself. I pray that you would help us to receive and understand what you have for us because we need these words, because we've drifted ourselves. Help us to find our anchors back to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, So we're going to look at these three drifts um, in the book uh, of Revelation. What are these three drifts? Each one of the letters has kind of a very similar format. Um, At the beginning of each letter, Jesus reveals uh, or kind of reminds them of an aspect of himself from the first chapter. Remember in the first chapter, we had this glorious vision of the Son of Man. And in the second chapter, with every single church, he tells them to look at a specific aspect of that vision. 
So with Ephesus, he says, remember, um, I'm the one with seven stars in my hand. To the church in Smyrna, he says, remember, I'm the one who conquered death. And all of these have a very specific meaning to each single church. But another thing that he does is after he does that, he rebukes the church, and then he says, to everyone who has an ear, let them hear. Now, what does that mean? That means that these are, yes, letters to churches, like whole churches, but they're actually also to individual people, to all of us as individual Christians. You see, what we can't do with these letters is to say, don't you see, you pastors, elders, leaders, these words of rebuke are for the church. And so you guys, you leaders of the church, better get your act together because you see all the ways that the church can drift. No. It's not just for the church and it's not just for the leaders. It's for everyone who has an ear to hear, let them hear. And let them make change in the church. Right? It's not just for the church corporately, but it's for everyone who has a soft heart to hear God's word. It's incumbent upon us to receive God's word and to make change in the church. And I think that that's how real change often works in churches. Individuals are changed in the heart, and when they change in the heart and they change the environment around them, the slow, slowly the church begins to change and shift. And I've actually seen that in our church. I've seen individuals come into our church or be changed inside of our church and actually begin to change the culture of our church and the spiritual environment of our church. I've seen that in our church. Now, I'm not going to embarrass the people and name them, but some of you know who you are, and some of you know who these people are. There are people whose heart change changes the environment of churches. That's what the letters are calling us to remember, that each person who has an ear to hear, you have to hear it, and you make change in the church. And so here are the three drifts that we have to be aware of that a church can drift away in. The first thing is a drift in purity, a drift towards compromise, a drift towards impurity, a drift away from the purity of God's church. Um, when you look at the letters, uh, there's this group that keeps coming up in the letters, and this group is called the Nicolaitans. And we don't really know that much about the Nicolaitans, but what we do know is that there was this group outside of the church who was luring the church into impurity, mainly using sex and culture to pull away the church into impurity. You see, we don't know very much about them, but we do know that they were saying um, and teaching new revelations about sexuality that was confusing the church and luring the church away into sexual immorality. When you look at the, the letter to Thyatira, God says, you, were, you guys let yourself be led away by Jezebel. Jezebel, and what he means by that is the, the sexual immorality um, that is around them. And this is what he says. He says, you let her speak into your church who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So you let yourself be led away by this new sexuality and this new teaching. You see, my best guess is that this group was coming to the church and saying, church, your understanding of sexuality and your understanding of sex in general is antiquated and ignorant. And there's this new teaching. And I get that because um, God says in one of the letters that they say that they have this new deep truth or deep teaching, 
but it's not the deep things of God. These are the deep things of Satan. They were coming to the church and saying that these are the new ways to look at sexuality. Don't you guys be caught up in the traditional old ways of looking at sex? This is the new stuff, and this is how you get awakened. This is how you get enlightened. This is how you can look at sexuality in a We are back, I hope. Just let it pass. And a two-year-old girl. And they're going to be taught a new kind of gender studies in the public school system. It's very confusing. Now, why is the church led astray? Why did the Presbyterian church split in two over the gay issue? One of the reasons that it's so alluring is that the world says this is the new, progressive, awakened, enlightened, intelligent way to look at sexuality. The churches in Turkey were being led astray. But it's not just the church as a whole, but it's individual Christians. Everyone who has an ear to hear this, please hear. Sexual immorality is rampant in our churches, in individual people's lives. Living together, premarital sex, these things have become normal parts of the romantic journey. And the church has played right along with it. Everyone who has an ear, please hear. This is one of the ways that the world causes us to drift away from God. We see it in the churches in Asia Minor, but we also see it in our churches today. The second drift, the drift in pride. What you see in the seven churches is that there's this drift with pride. When, when success and influence comes into the church, there's this great temptation. There's this great temptation to be led away from God. Now, I don't want to overstate this, and I don't want to be misquoted for this, but when you look at the letters, there are seven churches, right? The only two churches who are not rebuked, the only two out of the seven churches who are not rebuked and are only commended are the small churches. Now, 
This is what I mean. I'm not saying small is good and big is bad. And I'm not saying that rich is bad and poor is good. I'm just saying that just two, the two churches that are commended out of the seven are the two churches who are small and persecuted, and they're the two small churches that are trying to persevere and be faithful in the midst of all that's going on. I'm not saying that small is good and big is bad, but I am saying that with success comes temptations to believe that you are worthy of and that you are someone who doesn't really need God. Now that's true of the church, but it's also true of us in our individual lives. Some of you, the greatest tests, greatest spiritual tests that you will experience in your life is not going to be through times of hardship. For some of you, the times when you will be tested the hardest to see if you will really stay with the Lord will be the times when you experience tremendous success. That's when you will feel the most pull to go away from God because success will blind you. I know that we often think that spiritual testing is only times of hardship, but for some of you, the greatest times of spiritual testing, when you'll be really put to the test, is when you experience success and prosperity in your life. That's when you will see, will you really stay with the Lord or will you drift away with your prosperity and success? That's the second drift. And the last drift is a drift in love. Let's read verses, uh, Revelation 2, verses 3 and 5 again. This is what it says here. It says, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. That um, was given to the church in Ephesus. Um, you know, the church in Ephesus was not messing around with impurity. They were not messing around with the Nicolaitans. Actually, Jesus commends them and says, I have this for you. You guys hate the Nicolaitans. Me too. I'm glad you fought to stay pure. But I have this against you. Yes, you work hard and you have stayed pure as a church, but you don't love me anymore. You know, I can imagine that the Ephesian church was a very industrious church. They worked hard. They probably had a lot of staff meetings and a lot of worship practice and a lot of deacons meetings and a lot of things going on in their church. But Jesus was asking, but why, why don't you love me anymore? You serve the church, but you don't love me. You know, one of the best things I think about our church, about Mosaic, is that our leadership and our servants, they work hard, very humble, and they work very hard. But I wonder if the Lord is asking some of you this. You have been serving my church very hard, but why have you fallen out of love with me? Let me ask you, do you talk a lot about church, but talk very little about Jesus? Do you talk a lot about church, but do you talk very little about Jesus? Do you get excited about things that are happening in this building, but it's been a long time since you've been passionate about your Lord? These are some hard drifts that Jesus comes to the church in these letters and says, look, 
I am the son of man among the lampstands. I see what's going on here. I see what's going on in your church. I see what's going on in your hearts. I know. Don't think I don't know. I know what's happening. He calls us to turn around. And I want to ask you, do you recognize any of these drifts in your own heart? The drift to compromise and impurity. Do you see the drift of pride? And do you see the drift of being busy and not loving? A loss of passion, a loss of love for Jesus Christ. If so, I wanna give you two anchors to try to help you to find your way back. Okay, to two anchors that are, are in this word that will help us to find our way back as a church and as individual Christians, okay? Uh, the first thing is we need a coherence and conviction about the word of God. Coherence and conviction about the word of God. I know that sounds complicated, but this is what I mean. You know, when you look at Revelation 3.10, the Lord says to the church in Philadelphia, he says, because you kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. You have kept my word about patient endurance. You know, the, the churches in the book of Revelation were so close to the world that they couldn't tell the difference between what was wrong and what was right. You know, they were so close to the world that they had a hard time dis discerning what sin was. The church in Pergamum, when you read that, you find out they were messing around with the Nicolaitans, and that just made them very confused. But at the church in Laodicea, they were messing around with the world, not with these cults, but with the secular world, and that was causing them to be confused about what was right or wrong. There were all of these issues because they couldn't distinguish between what was right and what was wrong in the world. But he says to the church in Philadelphia, but you guys, you have kept my word. You kept my word about patient endurance and that's why I commend you. You were able to persevere. You're able to do well. You're able to be faithful. My brothers and sisters, as we live in this world, we need a deeper coherence and conviction about the word of God. And I use those two words because this is the reason. I think it's good to read the Bible from front to back. And a lot of you guys are doing it, and, I, and I'm glad you are doing that. And a lot of you have Bible memory verses, and I'm really glad that you're doing that as well. But what many of us are gonna need living in this culture is not just disjointed Bible verses that you memorize since elementary school or a list of how many times you read the Bible through, but you're going to need a coherent worldview about what God says about the things of this world. Your biblical knowledge has to make sense or you cannot use it. I don't know if you understand what I mean. Sometimes we have all of this kind of disjointed Bible truth, right? But then when we live in the world, there's this very stark challenge on things like sexuality, success, money. And now if you can't pull together your Bible verses, if you can't pull together the things that you have read into something that is coherent that can help you to think logically about money, to think logically about and biblically about sex, it's not very helpful, right? And so I think it is good that you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I commend you for that. And I commend you for doing Bible memory verses, but you also need a usable, coherent, biblical worldview. If you don't have that, you will not be able to be patiently enduring in this world. 
You see, he says, you have kept my word about patient endurance. You're going to need that because you are constantly in the world. And if you don't have something coherent, you're not going to be able to use biblical truth. You're just going to have these kind of one-off, disjointed memory verses. It's going to be very hard for you. I think it's especially true for younger folks. Um, As I said, I've been studying a lot of Generation Z the past few months uh, because I'm speaking at this conference um, about Generation Z, and I realized that Generation Z consumes so much of this world. Just the volume of how much they consume is pretty crazy. If you don't know, Generation Z is the generation that comes after millennials. Anyone born from 1995 up to 2010, and then after 2010, if your kid is born then, like my kids, they start all over in the alphabet, this generation alpha. Um, The sheer amount of connection and virtual connection that people have in this world, it's amazing. I know somebody who is a Gen Zer, and this Gen Zer is a programmer. He wakes up in the morning, and the first thing that he does is consume the news. He sits at his desk and he consumes the news, but he doesn't read articles, he just consumes bite-sized news for about 20 minutes. And then after that, he goes to work. But goes to work in coronavirus times doesn't mean he picks up a briefcase and gets on the train, but he just opens up a window, and that window is work. And he's working while watching Twitch, which is a new live streaming platform. I'm learning a lot about what's happening these days. And then he's also listening to music at the same time. And so he's got six different things up at the same time. And then he's working all day like that. And then five o'clock comes, work is over. But he doesn't pack up his briefcase, say bye to his coworkers and get back on the bus. He just closes a window. And then he opens up three more windows. And now he's hanging out. And then he does that until he goes to sleep. And in between, he'll use Grubhub to get his food. He'll get Amazon Prime to get his toilet paper. He never needs to leave the screen. His entire world is on the screen. And because of that, you are actually in the world more than you would have been in previous generations. How much more do we need a coherent, thick, biblical worldview? Because you are being bombarded in this world. You need to have something coherent. I would suggest, for example, to open up 1 Corinthians, instead of doing Bible memory verses, just for a few months. What if you opened up 1 Corinthians and you said that for one month, I'm gonna read slowly through 1 Corinthians and understand everything that God has to say about sex in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read the book of Romans and see everything that God says about success. I think that, brothers and sisters, we need to have something usable. We need to understand what God says. We need a biblical worldview. But not only do you need a coherent worldview, you need to have conviction about it. You see, coherence is what's going to tell you that's sin, right? That's what the churches in Asia Minor were lacking. They weren't able to see, oh, that's sin. The Nicolaitans, they're wrong. They weren't able to do that. Coherence is going to be able to help you to do that, to recognize something that that's sin, but conviction is going to give you the power to actually say no. Conviction is going to give you the actual power to want to say no after you've recognized it. We as Christians, we know things are wrong and we do it anyway. Right, because we lack the conviction. Not only do you need a coherent worldview, but you also need conviction. 
about these things. I don't know if um, you've seen these videos on YouTube, really funny videos of like Italian grandmothers, right? Like Italian or Sicilian grandmothers who are given American uh, Italian food from Olive Garden or uh, actual uh, genuine Chinese chefs or Chinese grandmothers who are given Americanized Chinese food from like Panda Express, right? I don't know if you've ever seen these videos, but it's really funny. Um, just, you know, be careful. Some of the Italian grandmas, they curse a lot on these videos because uh, they're very angry because what they do is they'll eat, eat the Olive Garden and they'll tell them, hey, this is Italian food, what do you think? And they, they are just repulsed. They're just repulsed at it. They, they, they say, this is not Italian food. There's one with Mexicans. They said, there's nothing Mexican about Taco Bell. <laughs> and the Chinese, they say, this is not real Chinese food. <laughs> why, why are they repulsed? They're repulsed because they have a coherent tongue that tells them what is genuine and what is fake. But not only that, they have a deep conviction and love for their food. And so that when they eat Olive Garden, they say, don't call this Italian food. Don't call Panda Express Chinese food. You see, they, they have a reflex that helps them to be repulsed by things that are not true. If you are a Christian living in 2021, you are going to need that reflex. And you are also going to need a conviction that things are not true. Don't you see, that's why God says you have to taste and see that the Lord is good. You have to taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't you know that you need a taste and a reflex and an emotional response to Christ and the truths of the Bible so that when you go out into the world and you're listening to Joe Rogan and you're listening to Jordan Peterson and you're reading The Handmaiden's Tale, there's something about you in your spiritual taste buds that you say there's something wrong here. This is not truth. It sounds a lot like truth. It looks a lot like a burrito, but it doesn't, it, it's not truth. I'm worried sometimes that young people don't have that reflex. We need a, a, a coherent and convictional biblical worldview. You need to live in your Bibles. Charles Spurgeon, he says something beautiful. He said, it's okay to go visit other books and I know that you do, I love books, and you know that. And I know that many of you read books for your devotions. It's okay to visit other books. Vacation in other books, that's great. But live in the Bible. Live in the Bible. Revelation 3.10, he says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Your anchor will be a coherent and convictional biblical worldview. It's okay to go slowly through your Bible, but you need to begin to develop an understanding of what God says about certain things. Take your time, and if you need help, look for a discipler in your discipleship relationships. I encourage you to do that. Now lastly, what's the second anchor? Not only do we need the anchor of God's word, in a coherent, coherent way. But we also need to rediscover the gospel. Now I know you're not surprised at that, but this is what I mean by that. Think about the Ephesians, right? God says to the Ephesians, this is your problem, you lost your first love. 
Now think about that. How do you cause people to love? Can you command people to love? Yes and no. They lost their passion for Jesus. How are you going to help them? You see, that's very tricky. That's really different from having a biblical worldview. Because how can you address somebody's passion? How can you address somebody's, not just ethos, but pathos, their passion? You can't. You can't command that. You can't give them principles and instructions on that. That's impossible. That's not how people work. But that's why we have the gospel. The gospel, my brothers and sisters, is not a command. The gospel is not a command of something that you have to do. The gospel is good news of what Jesus has already done for you. It's an expression of love to you that Jesus Christ did not ask you to do anything, but he came and he died on a cross for your sin and salvation, for a brand new life in this world. And he did it before you ever asked him to. And he gave everything for you before you ever asked him to. There's this great story about um, a man, I forget who it was, he asked Martin Luther after he, Martin Luther, he presented the gospel, and the guy raised his hand and he says, so, so there's nothing for us to do in being saved? So there's nothing for us to do to get saved? And Luther, he looked at him and said, nothing. Nothing. Jesus Christ did it all. You can't command people to love. You can't command people to find their passion again. You can only give them the gospel which incites their hearts to respond to love with love. When I look at these letters, I see the letters dripping in the gospel. And I know that it's not easy to see that, but think about this. These churches have been led astray they're dirty churches. They're impure churches. The Christians are doing God knows what out there. And yet, we can't forget this. Jesus is still committed to them. He is still with them. He is still with them among the lampstands. And he says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. If you read Revelation 3.9, This is what it says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them um, bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Don't you see that each one of these churches do not deserve Jesus' commitment to them, but that the reason that they are here is because Jesus is absolutely pledged and devoted to them. Despite their dirt, despite their spiritual adultery, Jesus is with them. That's what incites love. You know, at our staff meeting, um, and I'll close with this, at, at our staff meeting on Tuesday, our sister Rebecca shared, I forget what we were talking about, but our sister Rebecca shared um, that you know, we have young kids, um, Rebecca's family and my family, we have young kids, and when you scold a five-year-old, sometimes they shrivel up. They feel really, really terrible, and they don't know what to do with their emotions. Especially, 
um, when, you, when you really scold them and they just don't know what to do. They feel just so terrible, they start to cry, right? With older kids, this, you know, teenagers, they don't care if you yell at them, right? But with, with real young kids, they're just devastated, you know, when you rebuke them sometimes. And so I know that, but Rebecca shared that there's a special moment when you are rebuking your child, but then you go and you give them a hug, and your little child just melts on top of you because they needed that hug more than anything. Because you see, when a five-year-old is being scolded, sometimes they think, I messed up, and so my mommy does not love me anymore. I messed up, and so my daddy does not love me anymore. And they will not love me until I act right. They will not love me until I fix this. And so they don't love me anymore, and that's what's devastating them. But then the hug, when you embrace them, it tells them, I hate what you did. I hate what you did, but I will always love you. I will always love you. You can never sin your way out of my love. Don't you see what that's what these letters are? Jesus Christ going to his churches and saying, I hate what sin is doing to you. My church, my bride, I hate what sin is doing to you, but I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I'll always be standing among the lampstands. I hate the sin in you, but I will always love you because the gospel of Jesus Christ has purchased for us that commitment forever. How do you get Ephesus to love Jesus again? How can you get someone to reclaim their first love? You have to rediscover the beauty of the gospel. That gospel will move you. Your two anchors when you feel yourself drifting away is you need to come back to the word of God and to receive a coherent and convictional understanding of what God wants in your life. But then secondly, look, you'll never do it. You'll never want to do it unless you discover your lover once more. Let's go to him in prayer uh, before we go into this time of baptism. I just want to give you a moment. Um, I just want to give you a moment to just take it in And I don't know which way you've been drifting personally. Maybe success has just ravaged your spiritual life. Things are going too well. Or maybe there's a lot of impurity that's corroded in you since the beginning of corona. Or maybe you just don't love Jesus anymore. You get 200 cacao messages a day from church but you don't love Jesus. You lost your first love. Whatever you're dealing with, I encourage you to come to him. Rediscover his hug for you in the gospel. Melt on top of him. Know that he is for you, not against you. Let's take a minute just for ourselves and and, and let's pray together.
Father, we want to confess to you that um, we are wayward people, that we are wayward and drifting sons and daughters. And we pray that you would help us to find our anchors and return to you once more so that we would be able to understand uh, what it means that you are for us and not against us. Lord, Father, we pray that you would help us to rediscover the gospel and to know what you have said to us in your word. I pray that you would help us so that in knowing your word, we can remain faithful. And we pray for Mosaic. We pray that you would help us to be faithful, always committed to your word, and always glorying in the gospel together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.